put on a bit of weight since then. That's not me. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you this morning about fatherhood, uh, uh, especially the fatherhood of God, and primarily the fatherhood of God. Uh, and uh, I often find it difficult to sort of give a, a title that kind of resonates with people. So this title probably doesn't resonate with you, but hopefully by the end uh, of this morning it will resonate with you. Fatherhood is about being and begetting. It's about being something and begetting something. And uh, this particular picture was, uh, we were just walking through a market one day um, somewhere and this guy was there and he had um, this mannequin. So it's a man and a mannequin. And uh, you can see that um, <clears throat> that there is a kind of a rabbit that's got a violin and uh, he, there he is, he's got, he's got it uh, with that, you know, the the, the puppeteer, he's going to pull those strings and make it sing and dance and, and play its violin. And uh, classically, he's, he's, a, he's a man at the moment, isn't he? He's distracted by his mobile phone. And uh, I just thought that sometimes, you know, a picture just jumps out at you as something that symbolises fatherhood. <laughs> that, that, uh, that we live these distracted lives, don't we? You know, these phones that are going off all the time and things that are calling for our attention. And, and uh, we've got our kids there and we kind of hope they would be a little bit like these mannequins, you know, that they were, they were nicely manageable. You know, they were under control with strings attached and they would do what we wanted them to do and dance the way we wanted them to dance and sing the way we wanted them to sing. But life's not like that, is it? You know, uh, when you get into parenting, you discover that actually they've got wills of their own from the moment they were conceived, it seems like. Uh, those little darlings uh, have a plan <laughs> to disrupt life and, uh, and to make as much mess as they possibly can with as much fun as possible on the way through. And um, you have to learn an awful lot um, about, about parenting by doing it. And... Uh, and um, I suppose what this picture represents to me is it represents the difference between a sperm donor and a father. You know, fathering is not just about causing the conception, you know, but it's, it's about growing into the role, growing into an understanding of what it is to love these children more than you love yourself, you know, and to love the purposes of God in their lives. You know, the scripture is full of so many amazing stories that carry themes that are so current for today. And this is one of the very earliest passages about fatherhood in, in the scripture from Genesis chapter 5. And we just see as we read it, we're going to find themes that are just being played out in the, in the, in the life of our nation today. And this is the story, it says here, this is the account of Adam's line from, from, from Genesis chapter 5. The account of Adam's family line. When God created man as a particular genus, uh, separate from all the other created beings, he created man. Uh, and he uses that old word, Adam, for, about, for, for mankind. And he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And so we see that he doesn't just create Adam in his own image and likeness, but he creates Adam and Eve together, male and female. He creates them equal and different but the thing that in which they are most equal is in the fact that they are made in the image and likeness of God. And when he had created them, he called them man. Mankind, humankind. And when Adam had lived for 130 years, took him a while to get his act together, um, he had a son in his own likeness. In his own image, 
and he named him Seth. I'm fascinated by this passage because it, it tells us that when we were first created, we were created in the image and likeness of God. And, uh, and here we then get, when he starts to have children, we know that he has Cain and Abel, and there's just an absolute... Oh, imagine the trauma of that. Imagine that sense that, goodness, you know, we didn't realize when we, when, we, when we rejected the counsel of God in the garden, where it was going to lead. Look where it's led. Look where it's led. Look what's happened to our children. You know, one's dead and the other's alienated and separated from, unreconciled from God and from us. And, and then some years later on they start again and they have this child in their own image. <laughs> this is the thing about life is that um, it has these blind corners. It has these consequences that we, that we, don't, um, that we just don't think of. You know, we, at the time you know, we, we do things and we, we get involved in things without really thinking through the consequences. And we see that so much in today's world, that people are getting involved in lifestyles, getting involved in, in positions of social positions and in, uh, uh, that without really thinking through what the consequences of things, these things might be. What I thought of when I looked at this passage was that it reflects Adam's own sense of um, the growing distance between him and God. Because here he is, so conscious of the fact that he is made in the image and likeness of God. And then when he has a child, what he's looking for is he's looking for something that will affirm him. And he sees it in his son. In this. And so the thing for him there is the fact that what he's accomplished in the birth of his son says something about him in his image and likeness. That now out of his measured, you know, the growing insecurities of being alienated from God create in people this need for affirmation, this need for, for, for something to value them. And we see this is, the, I think, is like the beginning of this, particularly the male quest for significance. And here we set off on this path to live a life, to do things that, you know, that make a name for ourselves, to do things that will give us the sense of, 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 of significance, of value, of, of, of being worthy. And it comes from the fact that we have lost the sense of connection with the almighty God in whose image and likeness we are made. Often... When people talk about being made in the image and likeness of God, they, they say, well, it's not necessarily his physical image and likeness because God is spirit and it's not as if he has hands like we have hands and eyes. And uh, Although the scripture is constantly anthropomorphizing or constantly using the language of humanity to, 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 help, us to, to help us to understand God. It's, it's a way of God, God using like parable language. To say that it is as if God sees us as man sees. It is as if God handles us in the way in which we handle things. Um, this, when, however, so when we think about being made in the image and likeness of God, the usual language is things like that the image refers to our intelligence, it refers to our, uh, our um, sense of moral responsibility, it, it refers to our sense of creative capacity, and so it's in these things that we are in the image of God. As I was preparing this and thinking through it, this is the thing that really came to my mind, is that, that when God is, speaks about us being in his image, he's not talking about what he looks like. 
but what he is like. Not what he looks like, but what he is like. I've been exploring over the last, um, uh, you know, I haven't had a lot of (laughs) preaching responsibilities, so for me, I've just tried to use my Bible reading as a time to just let God speak to me. And one of the things he's spoken to me about is this famous phrase in the scripture that we see time and time again, the phrase, the name of the Lord. You know, his name. We sing it all the time, don't we? This was the phrase, the name. In Hebrew, they say Hashem. It stands for, they talk about the name that represents God. What it really means is this. God as he really is. Not as he is misrepresented. God as he really is. The true identity of God. So when he says... He made us in his image and likeness. It means he made us in his true identity. And I am finding those words absolutely revolutionary. That we are made not as just photocopies, but we are made, and his purpose for us is that we grow into the true identity of God. How desperately the world needs people like that. How desperately the world needs to see God in his people. As he really is. This is a beautiful painting. And it's on a wall in Stanthorpe, and it's a painting of a, a, I don't know whether he's still alive, but he was a hundred at the time. And uh, you can see how big the painting is, That's the, it's just on the, it's, it's on a nondescript street, it deserves to be pride of place, I think, but it's a relatively nondescript street, and you could just miss it, and I was fortunate not to miss it, and I just loved it, it was just Amazing. So you can see there's a typical door size. So it's a pretty big old picture of an old Italian resident who lived there for many, many years. But it tells us that this picture is what artists try to do, is they try to somehow capture the soul. Who the man really is, don't they? Have you ever listened to Arndo when he talks about the people he paints? He says that, doesn't he? He says what he's trying to do is he listens to their story and somehow he hopes to capture who these people really are. And that's what we do with people. We're actually wanting to see beyond the eyes. We want to see into the soul. We want to see who these people really are. And you know what I feel as I work with society these days? I feel like there's an unheard cry all around the nation. They are looking for the church to be in the image of God. Because they haven't got answers. They are throwing bucket loads of money at every kind of problem in the nation. And they know that they're doing it just because you've got to do something. But who can bring the healing that the nation needs?
One of the things about this phrase being made in the image and likeness of God, a God, <laughs> a God who, what do you think about this? <laughs> For a long time, I have been a kind of a, a kind of a purposeful person, and I have lived with a desire for a life-consuming and a life-affirming purpose. Um, and I've tried not to do that out of a sense of personal ambition um, because um, I know what's behind these eyes. I know that I'm a very human being and I don't ever seek to be anything more than God wants me to be. And I find that the role that I'm in today is... is you know, is deeply challenging because I'm obviously not qualified for it in so many different ways. But here's the thing. What I've been understanding about God is this, that sometimes because we have this deep need for purpose, we can't help but project that onto God. So we pray prayers like, what is your will, O God? What is your purpose, O God? Bring me into your purposes, oh God. Show me the way, oh God. Teach me, you know, what to do. Things like that. It's all rather action-oriented. You know? But if we go back to what it means to be in the image and likeness of God and to see that that speaks to us more about his being than what he looks like, it also speaks to us more about his being rather than what he does and accomplishes. Because the purpose of God is to be God. I am that I am. And the thing that we don't grasp, I haven't grasped, is the fact that God, the kind of person he is, just being the kind of person he is, has great effects. It does things in people's lives. And so his job is not so much to define himself in terms of his business plan. But his role is to be who he is and just see what happens because this is the thing I've learned. I've learned that God is more merciful than I ever realised. I didn't realise in my self-righteousness, how much I needed the mercy of God. Then I find myself in a situation where my frailties are very, very out there. And I realize I need a God who's deeply merciful. And what I then discover is that I discover the mercy of God is not a passive thing waiting for something else to happen. But the mercy of God brings about change in me that only mercy could produce. Makes me merciful. Makes me merciful. Because he's, I've experienced it. And I know its power. And I know its benefit. And the way that he does it in me makes me want to do that for others. 
forgive my sins even as I forgive the sins of others. Until you know that you're a sinner and you need salvation, you live as if it doesn't matter and you can do and say whatever you like to other people. But when you know a crushed spirit caused by your own sinfulness, you know that you live in such a world, thousands of millions of people needing to know the mercy and forgiveness of God. And so I discover that all of his glorious attributes, who he really is, his true name and identity, these are active forces and manifestations of God by the Spirit in the hearts and lives of people. He's just being God. That says something to us about fatherhood. <laughs> I can see the sense of people living for a really long time because it takes a really long time to learn how to live. Doesn't it? Now that I'm a grandfather, I'm a better father. But not a perfect father. And I've just put this picture up. This is the Right to Life March, pro-life march in, in Brisbane last year. Adam had Seth, a son in his own likeness. And how deeply has society been wounded that it will destroy its own likeness in the womb? What does it say about oneself? It tells me that there are a lot of broken people and the solution that's being offered to them is not making things better. It's making things so much harder. And the only people that can help them are the people that know what it is to experience grace and to be able to look at the Father and see something of their true identity. Um, <laughs> Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. I, I find in the scriptures that these stories, as I say, carry so many of the great themes of, um, that are so very in play today in our society. And um, this is Genesis chapter 13. As, as um, Abram goes down into the uh, promised land, um, <laughs> he takes a lot with him. And actually, he takes a lot with him. <laughs> because um, he, 
he acquired uh, an awful lot of uh, wealth and uh, cattle and sheep and all that sort of stuff, but also he acquired a growing tribe of people. And um, when it comes to settling the, the issues of, um, you know, when uh, uh, Sodom uh, is captured and, uh, and he gets involved in, in rescuing those people because of his, uh, his nephew Lot, um, at that time it says he had 318 armed men uh, born in his household. You know. So they'd been with him long enough to train as crack troops, the SAS of the day. You know. So he's a tribe, but none of them are in his image and likeness in the way that he feels should be. Although he's trained them, they're not yet begotten. begotten. And, uh, and the stories are just amazing. When you think about the story of Abraham and as a father, how Abraham becomes a father, and you, we don't have time to explore it, but the thing about him is that the story of Abraham, how he becomes a father, how he, how he gets to that place where he finally has Isaac with, with his wife Sarah, and they finally have Isaac. And when that happens... He's not a perfect man. He's, he's had, it's been a bit of a mess in some ways. And yet, what he's understanding is he's understanding the primary importance of his relationship with God and how vital that is. And that knowing God and being in relationship with God opens up his life to makes him a conduit of God's grace into the life of his community. And boy, that community needed it. It's a fascinating thing to me that God declares the land of the Amorites the promised land. These people were the most corrupt people. They were the most morally depraved of all people. The land was full of the most terrible shrines and immoralities that took place in those things. There was... Just absolutely horrible things going on, including the burning of infants as sacrifices to the gods. This was a, a terrible land. And, and the scripture, with its discretion, doesn't give us too much of the detail. But that land needed somebody who knew God. Who really knew God. And who understood that what God's work was, was the inner transformation and the outward expression of who God is. <laughs> and that's like today. It's like today. I was fascinated by the last few words of the Old Testament. This is the prophet Malachi, and in literally the last verse or two of the book, he writes this, he says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. 
Now, we might get stuck on that business about the curse, right? So I'm going to resolve it as much as I can now. What he's saying is, he's saying if the other stuff, the hearts of fathers, if they're not turned toward their children and their children to their fathers, the consequence of it is going to be terrible for society. That's what he's saying. He's saying they will reap what they sow. It's just a spiritual law. That's what happens. Okay, so that's what he's talking about here. It's not his desire to curse the land and to curse the community. He's saying it's just, that's what happens. Now, this is the thing that struck me as I read this passage. That this is what I call a great eschatological sign. This is a sign of the coming of the Lord. You know that the Lord is coming when the hearts of fathers are turned to their children and their children respond. Isn't that exciting? That's the father's will. The father is saying, before I come, I'm going to be manifest as a loving father in the lives of my sons and daughters. It's going to happen. And the generations are going to find each other It's a timely word, isn't it? It's a timely word. And he chooses his words carefully. The hearts of fathers, at the core of who they are, they discover a fresh passion for the total well-being of their children their deep spiritual well-being and everything else that flows from that. It becomes who they are. Now, this, it certainly applies to fathers and and children, but actually, it applies to all of us. That we become more and more the father's children and that our country and our world and guess what our families become the contexts into which God is revealed in closing when Jesus says Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is just around the corner. What that sounds like in a father's ears is love your children. That's the kind of change I'm looking for. And what it sounds like in children's ears is Love your mum and dad. Because that is the great eschatological sign of the father to whom the world cries for reconciliation. Can we sing that song, I Will Wait For You, again? Thank you. And You may just like to take this time to... Maybe just 
wherever you are. Um, make this your prayer. Father, Father, reproduce yourself in me. Change my heart, Father. We wait for you to change our hearts and to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's so much my prayer these days. I, I am so aware of the fact that I cannot be what, in my own strength, I cannot be what I'm expected to be. I just, I'm a fool. You hear me making stupid statements to my Jewish brother that I love. If there was anybody in the room, I wanted a hug. It was him. <laughs> and I say something stupid. And that's life, isn't it? We're always foot and mouth disease. We wish that there was more to us. And the Father is determined to do that in us all. But He asks us to let Him. To let Him. So if you want to come stand up before the Lord or kneel before God, whatever you... I'll tell you what, we've been going to an Anglican church and and they still do the kneeling thing, you know, and uh, we walk out to communion. It took us, took us months before we would go out because it just seemed so weird to us that you had to walk out and the bloke in a dress gave you the biscuit, you know, type thing. It just seemed, and then I started to understand that he was just God's servant and he was just serving. And I went out and I haven't stopped crying. Every Sunday I go out there and I just cry because of the sacrifice of Christ. And I was there in the building yesterday taking some photographs. And as I approached the altar, I just started to cry again. And I said, Lord, why? Why will I? Can you, can you help me with this? I'm feeling stupid. Every time I walk away from communion, I'm still rolling, you know, rolling down my face. And I realized that the altar speaks to me of the sacrifice of the Father and the Son for us and for the world. It's taken me a long time to work that out. That's how much the Father loves us. He gave His only Son that whoever trusts Him in this will not find their life just wasting away to nothing. Instead, life from God welling up within. If you don't know that today, you can. All you have to do is say, God, do that in me. I need that. Do it in me. And He will. Let's see. by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used for permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.